right, let's open up actually one more time to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. And when you get there, if you would stand, we'll read just four verses together in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us instruction. Father, I do pray that your instruction would be attended with open hearts and ears on our part. I pray you'd give us eyes to see deep within our own soul. And give us ears to hear, Lord, both the word of encouragement and hope as well as the word of correction. Thank you, Father, you make no mistake. I pray that you would lift up our hearts this morning with thy truth, especially those of us who are so blessed and privileged to be called fathers. Help us, Lord, as we carry this humanly impossible responsibility upon our shoulders in a world that's so bent on distorting everything that's good and godly. Strengthen us, Lord, for the task at hand. Give us humility in thy presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, ever since the aftermath of World War II, one of the characteristics, uh, very largely, of what has been called America's greatest generation was a, uh, a tremendously widespread generation gap, so-called, that appeared for the first time in America's history. And ever since that hippie generation of the 1960s, came to prominence, a number of sources with great interest have documented and, and run statistics on the role of a father's presence or absence with the family. If you fast forward to today, most reputable sources, even secular ones on the topic, will admit there is indeed a crisis of fatherlessness that is deteriorating the very fabric of American society and changing our culture as we've always known it. Recent studies indicate that 24 million children, that's one out of every three, currently live without their biological father in the home. And of course, many of those are couples that are not even married where the father is there. By the age of 18, over half of the children in America will very likely have spent a significant portion of their childhood with their father away from home for one reason or another. That, of course, can be linked to nearly every social plague that exists. 
Children from a fatherless home are four times more likely to live in poverty. I found this next statistic amazing in regards to infant mortality, children dying in infancy. It's twice as likely in a home where there's no father present. Now, I'm not sure all the reasons why, but perhaps that child detects something out of balance. I don't know. Children from a fatherless home are 32 times more likely to go to prison, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager, far more likely to use drugs and alcohol, two times more likely to become obese, two times as likely to drop out of school, five times more likely to commit suicide. Now, obviously, God's original design of placing the father as the head of the home cannot be improved upon, and there's a widespread satanic attack on this basic building block of society. Most assuredly, the devil knows in most forums, if you smite the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. It was true of Christ and the apostles. It's true of his destruction of the family. There seems to be no end to the forces seeking to pull men away from the stability and blessing of the place that God intended for them. A recent study conducted by Barna reported that roughly two-thirds, two-thirds of professing Christian men regularly view pornography. There are websites, more than one, proudly devoted to secretly helping men to indulge in extramarital affairs, some of which have caused great scandal recently. The entertainment industry has largely captured the hearts of the fathers of America, where millions of men, week after week, pine away the most precious years of their life. And that time of influence and such power slips away from them as they continually imbibe themselves in moral filth in an industry where dad is often portrayed as the buffoon and the butt of a good many jokes. Somebody quipped recently that they're going to proclaim the dandelion as the national Father's Day flower because the more it gets trampled, the better it grows. Many people see fathers that way. There's the addiction to professional sports that has reached epic proportions, which also draws fathers' hearts away. And it's not just the biggest sports you name. Perhaps you've noticed the explosion of so-called smaller ones. There's no end to the useless activities. I was reading a list of new extreme sports just recently. Nowadays, you can watch things like extreme ironing where men set up an ironing board on the edge of a cliff or in a kayak in the rapids and see who can press a shirt without a wrinkle. You can watch wife-carrying contests where men run obstacle course car courses carrying, uh, you guessed it. You can watch cheese races where they roll large rolls of cheese through an obstacle course. You can watch mud bogs snorkeling. Or I suppose one of my personal favorites is chess boxing, where right in the middle of the boxing ring, a chessboard is set up, and they alternate between beating each other in the head and moving pawns and bishops around the board. There's no end to that kind of activity, even, even amoral ones that draw dad's hearts away and pine away his life and ridiculous intrusions which don't belong there. 
There's the pressure to climb the corporate ladder, to succeed, to get ahead in career, and to provide material things. There's the multitudes of recreational opportunities. The new ATVs and whatever TVs that come out. Six-wheelers and 50-wheelers and price keeps going up and dads keep disappearing in the name of enjoying God's creation while they neglect the very role that God's given them to fulfill. And then there's a carnal tendency, sadly, to mentally disengage from the family if ever he does make it home. Well, that's just the world, right? That's just the carnal professing church. Statistics are stubborn things, aren't they? You look at the statistics in our conservative or fundamental or whatever you want to call them, churches. Churches like this who just want to teach the Scriptures. And the vast majority, statistically, of our young people are departing en masse as they reach adulthood from the things of God. You know what that shows, among other things? The crisis of fatherless homes is reaching epic proportions even among those who carry Bibles and attend worship services. There's many a fatherless home where dad's physically present, but his heart is in a far country. You know, the devil knows, Father, if your heart is in absentia, then it really doesn't matter where your body resides. He's largely won the war. So many dads today, there's no flame on the altar of their soul. Their lives are so filled with leaks of spiritual power and excuses that all sense of vision and direction have all but departed. The things of God occupy the scraps of their time after all the other things have been fulfilled. And the children may grow up saying God is prominent, but never preeminent. Because of the example they've been shown. Now, I'm going to make it clear my goal this morning is not to tear down fathers. There's enough of that around, isn't there? There's enough of that. And I'll say also there's always a danger at addressing one particular group, I think especially the men. The danger is that people who have men in their life We'll use what I'm going to say this morning as some club to beat them over the head. Don't you dare do that. Let God do the work of conviction. I don't want to tear men down, but I'll tell you, I do want to, with God's help, release a cannonade from heaven that's going to hopefully blow apart some of our false understandings and expose things for what they really are. I want to deliberately encourage fathers to grasp tightly the high and exalted role, the reins, the mantle that God has entrusted to you in the midst of a crumbling society. The influence, the stability, the power in the prayer closet, the mighty promises of God on your behalf and on behalf of your children to be man enough to have the fortitude to face difficult questions of self-examination to confess sin, to be genuine and real in your dealings with God, to lay aside pretense, to stop living like we have forever on this planet, 
And that we have time to put off that which is essential for that which is temporal. One of the only things a soap opera ever had right, I remember years ago coming across the screen. As sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. They do pass away quickly, don't they? We're going to confine our time this morning largely to just one single verse that we've just read. That's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. But I want to back up a little bit and show the broader context. I think it's very imperative as we look at this one verse where it occurs in the particular flow of thought. Now we talked about this as we were building through uh, the book of Romans that the general pattern in the epistles is there's the doctrinal foundation laid first and then uh, the guns kind of turn or and examine us and, and cause us and give us admonitions to live practically speaking. It's not just doctrine on paper, it's doctrine fleshed out in shoe leather here on terra firma. Doctrine in practice, Christianity that can be seen. That's the section in this epistle where this occurs. Now, we discussed some of those practical admonitions last week in chapter 4. We're not going to go there again, but notice chapter 5, what it starts with. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And once again, there's several explanatory statements that follow that. There's the outward, public, scandalous sins that so characterize a God-hating world that he says all of these should be put away from the life of every single person who claims to be a Christian. And then he says it's not just the outward, public, scandalous sins, it's the sins of the tongue. It's the foolish speech, it's the slander, it's the ridiculous nonsense that this slippery thing in our mouth causes us to fall into from time to time, or maybe more than that. There's a description of those who claim to be Christians, but their habitual obvious sins tell a different story. We're carefully told to test everything by the Scriptures. To have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but to reprove them. And then comes really the capstone command in verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I hope we know that without obedience to that simple yet profound command, living the Christian life is an impossibility. The fact that be filled with the Spirit is a command shows us, first of all, God has made every provision for its fulfillment. But it's also our responsibility if it's not carried out. Now, I'm not going to go into a lengthy explanation of what all that means. That's, that's outside the scope of this message. But you want to boil down the requirements for the filling of the Holy Spirit to their basic nuts and bolts. Here's what it amounts to. Cultivate a lifetime habit of saying yes to God. That sounds very simplistic, but that's really what it boils down to. It's not generally the major scandalous things. It's the little everyday obedience to the, to the still small voice that's giving direction, that's convicting of sin, that's arresting your conscience, that if we develop a habit of saying no, 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 we grieve the Spirit. We quench the Spirit, and we cannot be filled with the Spirit. But here's what I want to point out. What are the manifestations of the filling of the Spirit? 
There's one particular denomination today that's named after the sensational sign gifts. It's the charismatic movement. They would sit and tell you that the evidence of the filling of the Holy Ghost is the outward and sensational and loud. It's the rolling down the aisle. It's the speaking in tongues. It's doing the so-called supernatural. I hope I don't have to convince you that the Scriptures do not defend that position. Most assuredly, in the book of Acts, we see the filling of the Holy Ghost accompanied by shaking buildings, thousands converted, lame men healed, dead people raised to life. But if you keep in mind as we get to the epistles, what is it that's called the fruit of the Spirit? It's not the sensational and miraculous, it's those so-called everyday things like love and joy and peace and so on. He doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is raising the dead and the fruit of the Spirit is shaking a building. The fruit of the Spirit, dare I say, is much more basic than some of that. It sometimes our attention gets placed elsewhere. You want a more normal manifestation of what the filling of the Spirit looks like? Here's a wonderful glimpse here in Ephesians. Here's what I want us to notice, the thought process. Immediately following that command in verse 18, there's a twofold explanation given. He says, be filled with the Spirit, and then immediately he gives a description of what it's going to look like. And it's manifested two key ways. Here's what they are. First of all, it's manifested communicationally. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Manifestation number one comes out the mouth. It's a heart that's so filled with the providence and the goodness of God that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's the second one? It's manifested relationally, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now I'm going to say more on that statement in just a minute. But what follows that statement, here's what it is. For a whole bunch of verses, what follows is several different spheres of human relationship that involve leadership and submission. So in other words, here's what he's saying in the greater context of Ephesians 6.4. Two of the major acid tests regarding anybody is filled with the Holy Ghost is what consistently comes out of their mouth, especially in relation to God's providence, and how they handle their leadership responsibilities as well as submitting to the authority that God places over them in their lives. Isn't it true of our wicked natures? If you're given any place of leadership... Your tendency is to overlook your own faults. Your tendency is to expect others to overlook your faults. Your tendency is to demand that people obey you because after all, you're in charge. But turn that around. Your same fleshly tendency regarding those that God has sovereignly placed over you is to nitpick and to fault find and to find every excuse why you shouldn't have to obey them. Isn't that true? Isn't that what our natures do? You know, this passage as well as the Scripture, here's what it teaches. God does not assign leadership based on intrinsic value or superiority. Do we get that? In any sphere of humanity, 
leadership is not put there because of intrinsic value. It's not put there because it's better. Husbands are not better than wives. Fathers are not better than children. Masters are not better than servants. It's simply a result of God's sovereign choice. And guess what? He does not owe you and I an explanation. And you're not going to get one from him. He chooses what he does because he's God. And it's our ability to abide in that particular sphere. Whatever it is. It's one particular sphere of this leadership we're going to focus on this morning, and that's the role of the Father. Now, I said all that to say this. Here's where I'm going with this. A Spirit-filled Father, first of all, is one who understands submission in his own life. Think about this, dads. How well do you model submission to those that a sovereign God has placed over you? Let's just try a few. Back up a few verses from verse 4. What do you see? Honor your father and mother. Now you'll notice when you find that command in the Scriptures, it's not qualified, honor your father and mother if they did a good enough job to meet your expectations. Honor your father and mother if they're Christian. Honor your father and mother until you're out on your own. God's command is that we as dads, if we still have living parents, and by the way, your in-laws, if you're married, that you've married into, is to honor them, to value them, to respect them, to speak respectfully to them and about them. And if you think you can speak to your children disrespectfully about your parents and demand they obey you, how dare you? What are you modeling? There's not a person here that can't, in retrospect, nitpick their parents. Not one. We expect our children to overlook our faults, but we love to exploit the generation before, don't we? We must have all the facts. We must know all their motives. We must have it all figured out. How about an employer, if you have one? You know, a servant in the scriptural sense couldn't just quit his job. He was a slave. But we can make application to employer-employee. Are you one who constantly looks for reasons to gripe about your employer? He's ungodly. What do you expect him to act like? Do you constantly murmur and complain about the place God has sovereignly put you? If so, you're at odds with God's sovereignty and the problem is not your boss, it's you. How about government? Oh, our government's corrupt, no question. But do you find yourself picking out certain laws that you think are baseless and ridiculous? And you decide in your sovereign wisdom you don't have to obey that or that or that because I don't like it. What's the command of God? Submit yourself to how many ordinances of man? Every except those that expressly contradict the will of God for you, and there aren't a whole lot of those currently. But I've run into so many Christian people, they tell their children to obey them, not because they have intrinsic value, but they dishonor their parents, they speak wickedly about their boss, they refuse to obey the laws of government. What are you modeling? Your level of submission teaches volumes about the sovereignty of God. 
Your submission is a theology lesson that they'll never, ever forget. How about the other side of the discussion? I mean, what if I told you, dads, that the Bible commands you to submit to your children? Well, there's a strange way of looking at things, isn't it? But look at the terminology in verse 21, speaking to all of these people. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Submission means a lot more than just doing what somebody says. Submission in this context, here's what it means. Remember, we talked about this prior. There's no such thing in the Christian life as horizontal relationships. All of them are triangular. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ. Wives, submit to your husband as the Lord. So on. Biblical submission in this context, here's what it means. It's not just I'm going to do what this person says. It's I'm going to fulfill the particular sphere that God has given me because I fear Him, because I believe in His sovereign choice, and I'm going to treat those under my authority according to the sphere that God has placed them. And in that way, we submit to each other by fulfilling the roles that God has given us. Different way of looking at it, isn't it? Here's some ways you can submit to your children in the godly sense. Number one, you realize God has given you a leadership role based on sovereign choice and you are no better. Your children may rule over you in the eternal city. You realize that the eternal souls are on loan to you for a short season and the day is coming where you must give account to your Maker. You rearrange your priorities and examine your own Christian walk in order to prepare them for eternity. You realize you are likely the single greatest influence in their life to show them what God is like. And you make the most of this very short window to use it for the glory of God. Ran across an interesting quote by Sigmund Freud of all ungodly people. And even he acknowledged the greatest factor in a child and how they turns out is the, how they turn out is the influence of a father. Now, in keeping with that thought, there's just two really simple commands given to fathers here in chapter six and verse four. One of them is negative. One of them is positive. We're just going to briefly consider both. Okay, first there comes a negative command. Here's what it is: and ye fathers. Provoke not your children to wrath. Now when you see wrath or anger appear in the New Testament, it's primarily coming from one of two Greek words. The first one is thumas. It speaks of this quickly arising rage that subsides just as quickly. It's the result of a, a, a quicker emotional outburst. The other Greek word that's used here speaks of a more settled disposition of mind, which often works itself out in the desire for revenge. This type of wrath is like a slowly heating bonfire that eventually turns into a raging inferno. He tells dads, provoke not your children to that kind of response. In other words, it's entirely possible 
In fact, it's a very real danger that we can conduct ourselves as fathers in such a way as to drive our children towards this kind of slow-burning wrath towards us and towards the Lord Himself. The parallel passage is Colossians 3.21. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And he gives a qualifier on that. Lest they be discouraged. The word discouraged means exasperated. It means to have their spirit broken. Children weren't made to have their spirits broken. They're made to be full of life and energy and inventions and ideas. They're made to be full of ambitions. To try new things. What a tragedy it is when that's taken away by ungodly responses on our part. He says, Ye fathers, do not be the cause of your children having an angry disposition or having their spirits shattered. You remember Proverbs 17.22, don't you? A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. We often quote the first half of that passage. But a broken spirit drieth the bones. These kids are around our culture. Many of them sit in conservative churches. They'll obey. They'll sit in church services. They'll sing. They'll throw baseball. But inside their spirits withering away like a rose underneath the blast of the desert sun with no water. They're withering up and drying inside. There's a raging inferno growing. Eventually it's going to come roaring out. Root issues are not dealt with. Now I suppose there's two questions that all of us could ask at this point. Question number one is, why is this particularly addressed to fathers? And for one thing, we are the ones who are the head of the home under Christ. We're the ones that are responsible for the training of our children. But I do honestly think there's more to it than that. Could it be that fathers are more prone to parent in such a way? Dominant, forceful, unbending, negative, strict, overbearing. Perhaps mothers, by their gentler nature, aren't as prone. I really don't know. I suppose it depends on the mother. Now, I didn't spend much time researching this, just cataloging in my head, but I can't think of a single mother in the historical records of Scripture that we could say conclusively provoked her children to wrath. Maybe you can think of one. If you can, I'd love to hear about it afterwards. But you know what I can think of? I can think of several dads who did. Here's the other question. Just taking that verse out, writing it on a sticky note, pasting it on the fridge, if you didn't know the context, what would you expect to follow that? A statement like, don't provoke your children to that kind of settled abiding anger over time, what would you expect to follow? Personally, I would expect a long list of explanation of how not to do it. Isn't it interesting that the Lord does not do that? 
Apparently, we're expected to find the answers outside this passage. And I have to wonder if sometimes the answers aren't a little nearer to our own heart than we want to admit. It's easy to play dumb and look for the profound when God's showing us the blessedly simple and we won't even submit to that. Let's just examine a few case studies. We won't turn there for sake of time, but you are familiar with the story. You go to Genesis 37, and here's a scene of terrible family division and tragedy. Here's a young man who has a dream, a prophetic one, of what God is going to do in his future. His name is Joseph, and he runs, uh, perhaps unwisely, to tell his brothers, Hey, guess what? Let me tell you what I dreamed last night and uh, what that means. Oh, they hated him. But you know, that dream didn't make his brothers hate him. What that dream did is make his brothers hate him more. You back up in the context, and you see those brothers perceived that their father loved him more than the other children. And the idea is all of them combined. Were they right in what they did? No. But here you have this group of older adolescents or young men and what they want is their father's attention and his affection and his acceptance. And all their life they've grown up with this nagging feeling that they're the son of a more despised wife. Their father doesn't quite take them into his inner circle. And now here comes Joseph with his coat of many colors. And he represented the embodiment of their father's rejection. And that's why. They hated him because of what their father done. Most of you probably know if you have a lot of children, you're going to have one or maybe a couple that intrinsically have personalities that more readily blend with yourself. That may be true in certain seasons of life. That may just be the way they are. But here's what we can't afford to do. We cannot afford to allow any sort of favoritism to take root in this corrupt heart of ours because of our own laziness and our own lack of desire to enter into the world of that child who maybe our personalities don't blend as well. One of the most destructive things we can ever do as a parent is unfavorably compare one child with another. Why can't you be like your brother? You know what your sister would have done? Pretty soon you may drive them to want to sell their brother or sister into the Midianites as a slave. Because of the enmity that you're setting up as a, as a parent. How about, how about 1 Samuel 20? Here we see Jonathan, son of Israel's first king, Saul, in the middle of his period of insanity. Saul arises from, or Jonathan arises from the table in great anger. And the reason he's so furious with his own father is because of his unbelievable hypocrisy. His jealousy, his shiftiness, his injustice, his cruelty, and not to mention insulting his mother as a perverse, rebellious woman. Jonathan was provoked to wrath. How about Absalom? For one thing, David entirely neglected to punish Absalom's half-brother Amnon for the sin of rape. 
Maybe it was because of David's own moral failure. Many fathers will make that mistake. I sinned in the past. I can't correct my son about the same thing. Don't you want to protect them from the same destruction you walked in? David further compounded the problem by pretending he wanted Absalom home in Israel while refusing to see his face and be close to him. So the fire burned and burned. David kept them at arm's length. Absalom wanted his nearness. He wanted his blessing. He wanted his forgiveness. But he was kept at a distance. And eventually, the bitterness came out. He mounted an insurrection. Deposed his own father from the throne. Took advantage of his own father's concubines in the sight of the entire nation. But it all started back there. A child was provoked to wrath by a father who was not walking in the Spirit. Second, we can take some time and think of what God is like. Is God tender? Is God long-suffering? Is He ready to forgive? Is He able to see the good as well as the bad? Does He keep His word? Did He lay down His life for our sakes? This third one really is not real complicated. But I wonder how many of us have stopped to ask this kind of question. What is it that you would expect in somebody in any sphere of leadership over you? And how does that relate to you and how you respond as a father? Dads, do you have unreasonable expectations? Are you impossible to please? When was the last time you asked your children that question? Do you always see the negative? Are you constantly critical? No matter what they do, you see the flaw in it and you have to point it out. Are you inconsistent? Whether cracking down with intense discipline one week or month and then letting him get away with murder the next. Or inconsistent in your spiritual life. Family devotions are important this month. They're a priority. Not next month. You think your children don't notice that? Do you break your word? And not say a thing? Are you unapproachable? Fly off the handle when you're asked an honest question. Do you explain the why behind your stances and directions? I'm not saying if a child's told to do something, they should ask why. That's never a good answer. That's the question you ask after you obey children, young people. But as they grow older, one of the common things I've heard out of I don't know how many young people who've grown up in the church, here's what they say. I know what my parents taught, but I never understood why, and they never explained it to me. And those same parents will fly off the handle when a child goes a different direction, but they never communicated flame to flame. It was just rule to rule. It was standard to standard, but it wasn't the why, the meat. Son, here's why my heart beats the way it does. Here's why I desire these things for you. 
Now, if I'm wrong on that, may God correct me, but there's good reasons for what we're doing. And I want you to know those reasons so you can be equipped to stand for righteousness in the next generation. Do you refuse to communicate and expect them to read minds and then respond as though you talked? Are you excessively harsh and angry? Do you hold grudges? Do your children have to do some sort of penance? Will you grumble around like a three-year-old pouting after something they did? Do you take deliberate interest in their activities for their sake, not because you love them all? Are you a hypocrite in obvious areas? And, and we could fill in the blank. I'm going to stop there. But the same things that would break our spirit and exasperate us with somebody in leadership over us. We can make application to how we're doing and our responsibility over them. All of us fail in most of the areas I've just mentioned. But here's what they need to see. Genuineness, reality in your walk with the Lord. Closeness to Him. A passionate heart after Him will cleanse a thousand lesser evils. Be approachable. If you get mad when your children ask the reason why, your heart's wrong most of the time. And you're not going to keep theirs. There's a time to ask why. But if you can never answer that question, something is wrong in your head. Be ready to honestly communicate the why as well as the what. Confess sin now. When you sin against your children, deal with it now. Not tonight, not tomorrow, not next week, not next time we have family devotions. Display some conviction and sensitivity towards the Spirit of God now. Here's what they're going to see. They're not going to see perfection in you, but they're going to see growth. They're going to see an imperfect sinner growing in their nearness to God displaying repentance and restoration because they need that themselves. So do not provoke them to wrath. Now here's a positive command. But bring them up. Bring them up for one thing is the opposite of tear them down. Dads, and I could say moms too, how do you honestly view your children? Are they bundles of ongoing problems and failures that it's your constant unpleasant duty to try to fix? Or do you look at them through a lens of compassionate, Christ-honoring love as weak, fallen sinners who are made in the image of God, which you have the unspeakable privilege of helping to form into the image of Christ? In other words, do you see yourself as a builder or as a demolition crew? There's two specific elements given in building them up. The first one is the word nurture. Bring them up in the nurture. Now what do you think of when you hear that word? I suppose we tend to think of this sort of mollycoddle. 
here I take my 16-year-old boy, he's starting to shave and just goo goo gaga, you know, put my thumb in his mouth and pat him on the head and sing him a lullaby. It's not what the word means. In fact, turn here if you would, just real quick. I want to show you something. Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Keep your finger in Ephesians. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll just read a few verses here. Hebrews 12, verse 5 and following. And what I want to show is five times in this passage that same exact Greek word appears. Here's what it says. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou, here it is, the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth, if he endure chastening. God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards or illegitimate and not sons. That same Greek word is translated there, talking of God's discipline, as the word chastening. Where chastening really means child training, but a large part of that is talking about corporal discipline. It's applying the proverbial board of correction to the seed of knowledge. Now, obviously, as they get older, the rod's going to take different forms. But notice the qualifier in both of these statements. It's the nurture of the Lord. Now, here's why that's important. It's not the discipline of a parent who's fed up. All discipline must be sifted and motivated by this one central thing, the glory of God, because that is what is at stake. And it's because you love your child and you cannot bear to let them wander outside God's pathway of blessing for very long that you have to step in and do something about it. Now this nurture, this discipline of the Lord is going to have some certain characteristics. Number one, it should be obvious to the child they're being punished because they have transgressed the word of God and not because your plans have been disrupted. The punishment is going to fit the crime and not be unreasonable. The punishment is going to be consistent because God does not change. The punishment's not going to be given in anger, haste, at the heat of the moment. I doubt there's a parent here who's never failed at that. We lose so much when we discipline our children in that spirit. Better go walk in the mountain for six hours or not, not discipline them at all than it is to discipline them in unholy anger and carnality. It's going to be sufficient to produce fear of disobedience. This is not grandmother's pillow paddle. This is a discipline that actually produces repentance on their part and gets the point across. Which, by the way, is going to vary child to child. How many of you found out some of your children have a leather backside? You have to spank the daylights out of them. Another one you can just look at. Different temperaments. 
By the way, it's no transgression of justice to discipline them according to that sort of makeup. God does it with you and I. You think he treats a stubborn child differently than one who's not? You better believe he does. He trains them according to who they are and what they need. Here's another one. The nurture, the discipline, it's done in the Spirit of the Lord. When it's over, it's over. In other words, there's uh, the relationship still existing unhindered. They're not held at arm's length. It's not this... Well, you disobeyed. I paddled you. It's been dealt with. You confessed it. But now I'm going to be mad at you for half the day. A child who's disciplined like that is going to carry that into their Christian life and they're going to have a very hard time believing when they confess sin to God, it's over. And they're going to have a complex carrying constant guilt because that's what they were taught by example. Secondly, there's the nurture, then there's the admonition. That's also qualified by of the Lord. The word admonition means to, to put in mind. It's training by word. It's not enough to merely mete out punishment as some spiritual sheriff. But verbal instruction aimed at the heart must be consistently given along the way. You know, the word admonition really is like Deuteronomy 6, 6-8 through 8, compressed into four syllables. Most of you are probably familiar with that passage. Very important verse on parenting. Here's what it says. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. Now you see the progression? First of all, there's a determination on the part of the parent that I am going to be saturated by the Word of God myself. It's going to be in my heart. After that effort is spent to instill the Scriptures in them, not just stated times, but throughout everyday life. And the sign on the hand, the frontlets between the eyes, there's a determined direction for me, for my family, for my children, and they know what it is, and I know what it is, and God is going to be honored in this home. And if He's not honored in my life, I'm going to deal with it, and I'm going to call it what it is, and I'm going to set an example of repentance and restoration that God wants me to model before them. As the Word of God penetrates and saturates our own existence and occupies our mind, we grow in our ability to admonish. And by the way, admonishment's not just the duty of parents. It's a major duty of a Christian minister, but not only them. Uh, Paul actually commended the church at Rome in, in chapter 15 about their maturity. He said they're able to admonish one another. You know, a mature church body, as we grow in our knowledge and love for each other and of the Scriptures... We're able to give each other verbal instruction, yes, and correction in the spirit of love. And we all grow as a result. You know, there's actually an entire branch of counseling named after this Greek word. If you've ever run across the term neuthetic counseling, uh, that's where the term comes from. Guys like Jay Adams, the ones who write books concerning this sort of thing. And really it was formed in response to the Freudian self-esteem, blame-shifting nonsense that has hijacked American Christian counseling in the last five decades. And it really is a scriptural way to look at it based on this principle of admonishment. But here's what it means to neuthetically counsel, whether somebody else or to deal with your child. There's the discipline, 
But the Nuthetic counsel or admonishment has four characteristics. Here's what they are. Number one, it's confronting a definite sin issue. This is not a mistake. This is not oops. This is not an excuse. This is you have disobeyed the Lord. Number two, it employs primarily verbal instruction. Number three, the motive is not to prove your point or win the argument or point out their flaw, but an honest desire to restore them and to help them turn from their error and be blessed of God. But here's the fourth one. True nuthetic counseling or admonition is aimed at dealing with root causes. This is absolutely critical. You know, as our children get older, we have to become more proficient in helping them to see not just what they're doing is wrong, not just why it's wrong, but why it is that they keep doing what's wrong. What's the root cause? What's the, what's the real issue? And that's not always easy to determine. It might take some seasons in the prayer closet of crying out to God for wisdom because we don't know why exactly they're doing it. This is why I've hit on the theme a number of times why I think a familiarity with Romans 1 through 8 is so absolutely critical in discipleship and parenting, which is really just discipleship as they get older. Let me just give you an example. It's a common one. Probably touched on this before. Take something like anger. Just take a common one in Christian circles. Most of you, if you have a lot of children, you probably have at least one child with a real temper. Most of those children with a real temper probably have one parent with a real temper too to match. And many times if mom and dad won't repent of their own temper, the problem can't be dealt with. But let's say that child. They probably have one sibling who's adept at pushing their buttons, right? I mean, that one sibling just is just a master of making them fly off the handle. How do you deal with that? What's the problem? Is it that other sibling? Well, they may be part of it, but they're not the main problem. Do you duct tape their mouth? I knew some parents a while back that took their two oldest children who were like this, and they tied them together. They made them sit on the couch for a good long while. I'm not saying it's a horrible idea, but that's not going to fix the real problem. Let me just boil it down to this. An anger problem. Here's what it is as its root. You know what it is? It is a partial, at least, rejection. It's an enmity against the sovereignty of God in some sphere. That's what anger boils down to. It's that I'm given a circumstance that I don't think I deserve. I have to deal with somebody that I don't want to deal with. I'm not getting something fulfilled that I want and I'm furious about it. And what's the real problem? You see, you take a child like that and say, well, now, now you shouldn't get mad. Passages that say anger is wrong intend to drive you to the passages that show you why you're getting mad. Let's say you take that child and you study with them through Isaiah 40 through 48. And then you study with them through Romans 9 through 11. And then you take them to God's questions that he asked Job. Like, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Deck thyself now, Job, with glory and majesty and excellency. Behold everyone that's proud and lofty and bring him low, and then will I confess that you have power. But you see, it's as we see 
the majesty of the God in the heavens. As as we understand the tenor of those passages that are essentially saying, how dare you, frail, mortal, blind creature, question the sovereign God who holds the universe together. And as we see God like that, and our children see God like that, they're humbled and anger departs. But you see, it's a question of God's providence that's the real problem. You could apply this to a thousand other forms. There's a wife that won't submit to her husband. What's the real issue? It's not him. It's not her upbringing. It's not her hormones. It's not any other excuse. You know what it is? She is at odds with the sovereignty of God. And until she sees God for who He is, the anger's not going away. As we pray through our children their sin issues, we have got to aim at the root. It's not just what you're doing wrong. Let me show you why you're committing it. Let me show you how to deal with it. And if we're not dealing with it, let's go deeper. And let's go deeper. And let's go deeper. And by the grace of God, we're going to tear that root out if it goes clear down to hell. Let's just sum this up, though, in closing quickly. None of us are sufficient for these things. I hope in some degree we hear this and we realize the total impossibility of the task we've been given as fathers. That's exactly the point. We have to see that fatherhood is shown in the passage to be a proof of the filling of the Holy Spirit because you and I are unable in the energy of the flesh to carry it out according to the way God has designed Remember what command number one is? Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the verb there means. It's a constant filling. Cultivate a habitual pattern of saying yes to God and confessing sin immediately. Out of that walking in the Spirit is going to come an understanding of how we need to submit ourselves as a model of those who are to submit to us. Submit ourselves to Christ Submit ourselves to whatever authority God's placed over us. To submit ourselves to one another in the local church in the scriptural sense. To submit ourselves to our children in the way that's described in this passage. Out of that we have to make sober assessment of the demeanor and the spirit of our children from time to time. You look at a developing attitude problem. I think most of the time it should be a knee-jerk reaction. Lord, am I part of the cause of that problem? And oh God, deal with me before I deal with them. Because just like Joseph's brothers and the others we talked about, the real fountain of the problem sometimes is higher up the chain, but we don't like to admit it. We're too spiritual for that. We've got all our ducks in a row. We've got to face the difficult question of whether or not we are breaking them down, or building them up. We've got to deal with sin when it's made apparent. 
without excuse. We have to administer consistent patient discipline in a way that draws their attention to the glory of God and not our own carnal ambitions. And we must be continually in the word ourselves, so that we are more and more equipped to help our children understand their own errors and to willingly forsake them for the Lord's sake because the day is going to come. And if they don't have a faith that's their own, if they don't have convictions that are their own, then they're not going to have them. We don't have time to wait. The wreckage of destroyed lives as a result of unspiritual fatherhood are all over around us. We don't have time to put off being genuine with the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, even the glimpses of our own failures that we do see, well, we don't like to think about them because we feel overwhelmed. Seems like such a monumental mountain full of failure we have to overcome. But Father, show us the impossibility of fixing ourselves. Make us so that we're cast upon the power of that blessed Spirit. And that each of us would continually learn by experience what it means to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I know it's not something we can learn by hearing so much as it is by experience. Father, I pray you'd give all of us as dads especially a holy urgency. A sense of the sands going through the hourglass. A day of our own accountability before you, rushing on to meet us. Our children growing up with such speed and time ever rushes faster and the world races towards its destruction. Lord, give us eyes to see the brevity of life, the brevity of parenting, but yet the long-lasting effect. I pray, Lord, you'd work a deep repentance in each of our hearts as dads where it's needed. Don't let us be content with being pretenders for our own good. Flush us out in the open where we have to deal with things as they are, as you see them. In Jesus' name, amen.